Uh, it's really a great pleasure to welcome from her home, live from her home in Vienna, I should say, uh, Professor Sophie Leudolt. Uh, professor Leudolt is a professor of philosophy at TU Darmstadt in Germany, and her work centers on issues in the fields of phenomenology, political and legal philosophy, and ethics. In 2018, she was awarded the Edward Goodwin Ballard Book Prize for her book, Phenomenology of Plurality, Hannah Arendt on Political Intersubjectivity. She's also a member of the Young Academy of the Austrian Academy of Sciences and Vice President of the Austrian Society for Phenomenology. So she's very, very busy. And so I'm especially, especially then happy to also, that's the last thing I'll say about you, Sophie, so that you're also a new member of the JBSP's Editorial Advisory Board. And so with the schedule as packed as that, we're very, very lucky to have you. Um, her talk today is titled Order, Experience, and Critique, The Phenomenological Method in Political and Legal Theory. Uh, there will be plenty of time for questions after the talk, so I think you post your questions in the chat, and we will get to as many of them as we possibly can. Sophie, the floor, or the Zoom, or whatever we're saying these days, is yours. Thank you, Darian, for this um, kind introduction. And uh, let me start by um, just thanking the organizers very, very much for putting all the effort in this completely new format. I mean, you've just invented a new, new conference format here and put everything, all your sort of enthusiasm and inspiration in there. And I, I, as I've heard and as I can see, it's working greatly. And uh, I think that's really fantastic. And then uh, thanks also to everybody who is listening in here. Um, as Darian said, my, my talk today is going to be about order experience and critique. Um, it's a talk about method, actually. So um, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to show you my uh, PowerPoint. Okay, so as I said, um, it is a talk uh, about method, about the phenomenological method in uh, political and legal theory. And I want to start by the observation that um, the last years have actually seen quite some activity and a significant increase in phenomenological investigations of the political. Since 2016, there were alone four collected volumes that appeared in English that not only have uh, phenomenology and political in their title, but that also explicitly address the question of uh, methodology. And I think that this growing interest is of course exciting, and then it speaks to the urgent relevance of the topic. At the same time, I think it is revealing and no coincidence that method is often in the center of these contributions, and that's why I want to talk about it today. Um, phenomenology has um, often been accused of uh, solipsism, internalism, subjectivism, transcendentalism, or essentialism, and I say accused because these are all labels that were definitely meant to rule out that phenomenology could say anything relevant about political or uh, social issues. As Gail Salomon has recently, and I think rightly, insisted again, this is, of course, a caricature of phenomenology and also of its method. Neither is there just one rigid method, nor is there just one 
grand master who set the course in stone, so Husserl maybe, or Heidegger, nor are these limited interpretations of Husserl that we have seen uh, 30 years ago or something like that correct. And numerous studies in the last 25 years have shown that, I think. If we look at the landscape right now, these productive and careful rereadings of the phenological tradition that already started in the 90s and early 2000s have not only opened several new interdisciplinary paths from cognitive science up to nursing studies, they have basically triggered a whole wave of investigations on intersubjectivity, on empathy, on collective intentionality, on generativity and the like. So I think it is not wrong to say that phenomenology has probably never been so social as it is now. Now, um, still, uh, one could maybe object that this does not solve the issue that political inquiries might have with phenomenology. So I agree, I think, because to consider social relations alone does not yet mean that one has a sense for their political significance. Such investigations can, in fact, remain quite unpolitical and as a consequence remain naive with respect to issues of exclusion, discrimination, and most of all, the mechanisms of power that cause them. Phenomenologists who are interested in politics and in this political aspect especially want to be, I think, critical of these issues and they want to be able to analyze and question power relations. And I think this is also the case for engaged phenomenology. And this does motivate new or different or a renewed um, methodological inquiry, as I've mentioned above. Um, on the other hand, we have seen this development that critical theorists and politically interested scholars, like from political science or political theory, increasingly want to make use of phenomenological methods. This desire on both sides is, I believe, not just an intellectual fashion of the day, but it really stems from an urgent theoretical need to analyze the experiential side of politics or of societal orders in general. This has given rise to a new brand in phenomenology, calling itself critical phenomenology. And here we are also talking about engaged phenomenology, which is something slightly different, but I have lumped it here together also with the other expression of political phenomenology. Um, and I think many of these sort of new ways of trying to do phenomenology are still um, on their way of defining themselves and of defining their relation to the classical tradition. But it seems as if, uh, at least in the case of critical theory or critical phenomenology, it seems as if this sets out as a fruitful and interesting um, crossing over uh, where each side lends insights to the other. Um, now, the main figures that are named as the patrons, at least of uh, critical phenomenology, are not surprisingly people like uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, Jean-Paul Sartre, Franz Fanon, Simone de Beauvoir, Hannah Arendt, or Emmanuel Levinas. 
All of them have contributed, as we all know, um, essentially to phenomenology, but also to for the phenomenological method by transforming it. And by transforming it um, in the way of raising the issues of alterity, of plurality, of race, gender, embodied existence and conflict. By making these issues central concerns, this, these authors have politicized phenomenology and have made it sensitive for normative issues of marginalization and hegemony while also holding on to a certain style and some main categories of phenomenological analysis. So I'm, I'm just uh, mentioning these um, godmothers and fathers here, but what I would like to do in the following is to present some of these methodological tools and topics and also maybe, you know, present them in a new way. And uh, for this toolbox to make sense, it will be necessary, that's how I'm gonna proceed. It will be necessary first, I think, to clarify some very general questions concerning phenomenological methodical frameworks. And in the second step, I'm gonna move to some methodical challenges that specifically come up with our topic in question, namely political and uh, legal orders. So um, let me uh, proceed to uh, the first part, some general questions. And um, in the following um, remarks, I'm, I'm thinking a bit in the back of my mind of a conversation with um, a newcomer to phenomenology who is interested in working with phenomenology in the field of political and legal theory and who would ask, for example, like what methods to use and which authors to turn to. And um, this is a tricky question because it is clear that there is not just uh, one right answer to this question. Um, but it might help to reflect, that's why I'm starting out in such a general way, on some basic questions concerning phenomenological methodology to sort out the main challenges for setting the course. So the first uh, question with uh, which I want to start this is the question of how pluralistic can methods be to still belong to the same intellectual project? So what are we actually doing when we do phenomenology and when is it still phenomenology or is it not? Or what, are, there some, are there some features or are there not? And do we need an orthodoxy of methods or, or a canon or something like that? And um, certainly um, this question is uh, even more tricky um, than uh, the first one because it directly connects to the political worry of exclusion. So the, the challenge here is really, I think, to navigate well between the scula of a well-meaning openness that loses specificity. So a phenomenological approach can just be anything if I feel talking about my experiences. And on the other hand, a charybdis of a rigid orthodoxy where, where one would claim something like only somebody who uses the eidetic method or I don't know, the, the transcendental reduction. And I, my, I think that Dan has talked about this too, can claim to carry out a phenomenological investigation. I think that neither it is desirable, especially also for critical reasons, to completely lose one's contours 
as an approach. So I think that's why it is important to sort of keep to, to, to be able to name some feature, features, what it is that phenomenology is actually bringing out what it can do. On the other hand, of course, um, something like a jealousy, jealously defended pureness will definitely not foster creativity. I would thus like to argue that we do not need an orthodoxy of methods, but rather something like best practice models or exemplary approaches, as well as a toolbox to freely and coherently work with. Um, as things stand, uh, phenomenological methods are no manual anyway, which can be a frustrating experience for the beginner. She hears that, for example, it is a method, but at the same time that the subject prescribes the method. The hints that phenomenology is about learning to see or about a certain style sometimes can appear a little bit fuzzy for a philosophy that seems to be defined so much by its method. Yet, on the other hand, these hints illustrate already some core convictions, namely that phenomenology cannot be done without engaging already with the phenomenon in question. And I think that is some of a core, a core feature of engaged phenomenology, that it takes that seriously, again, on a methodical level. And the other core conviction is that subjectivity is nothing without the world it moves in. So although this seems to imply that there are precisely no methods to acquire um, for guiding one's inquiries, the methodical lesson to be learned here is correlation or relationality. To what extent one wants to take this basic insight then into a transcendental, existential, hermeneutic or alterity direction, I think rather depends sometimes a little bit also on the taste of uh, the phenomenologist. But what remains a shared conviction is that anything that is given requires a certain mode of givenness that is bound up with it. I mean, that could be another explanation of what correlation is about. To inquire into these modes of givenness while givenness is happening is phenomenological style, I would say, to recur back to Merleau-Ponty's quote, instead of applying abstractly acquired tools and frameworks to a topic and thereby adjusting and maybe also petrifying it. And I think that very often when I'm asked about method that people have in mind that then you just acquire a framework which you can put on basically on anything and then something will sort of um, emerge out of that. And that is in a way exactly what phenomenology does not want to do. And this is sometimes um, sort of difficult to see because um, method as we see today very often has exactly that meaning that it is a framework that is just applied. So, um, so that's why I'm trying to argue for a more flexible toolbox that has also to, where, where, where it depends very much on being attentive to the phenomenon and to judge each time how to use that. Um, so, so having said this, um, the, the mode of givenness and correlation certainly also give the beginning phenomenologist, I think something like an open framework, I would say, that she's called to adopt and develop further. 
So what is this open framework? It is that of the what of the given correlating to the how of being given that in how of givenness and the whom of givenness. And um, so the, the more, um, so to say, classic terms for that, the what of the given, who sort of could uh, call that um, you, you um, uh, um, put that into ontological re regions of phenomena, then the how of givenness could be different types of acts or activity, passivity, perception, body, affectivity, emotions, so on and so forth. And the whom of givenness um, is are different forms of subjectivity and intersubjectivity, but it could also be anonymity. Um, if we think about uh, uh, phenomenologists like Jan Patochka, for example. So, but this is something like an open framework where you can start asking question in this, questions in this direction by analyzing a phenomenon. And then furthermore, of course, the category of meaning which comprises this whole relation is a central methodological category for phenomenology. And also here I would be quite open, you can call that as coming about by intentionality or in a more Heideggerian way, transcendence or by operative intentionality as Melconti calls it and takes the term by Husserl. So um, for the question how meaning comes about phenomenology uh, uses this uh, famous or maybe also infamous term of constitution. But also here, I think that this does not yet imply the politically much dreaded and criticized sovereign subject, but that this can also mean, constitution can also mean passive bestowal, dynamic interrelatedness, co-constitution or ascendance, as Levinas might call that. So, these are some main cornerstones that one can take up and practice, do so practice phenomenology with them, which is, as all practices, always a bit like learning to play an instrument and not nearly apply notes to an instrument. So, um, but there is another thing. What is also crucial is. Um, what one chooses as one's phenomenon. So what is it that uh, you want to analyze, you want to work on and with? And what is the subject of interest? What one sees or comes to see as his or her phenomenon, what engages us actually as theoretically active uh, sub subjects? There are, of course, historical, political, cultural, subjective, in the end, personal relativities to this selection and to this visibility of what I can see as a, the, the relevant phenomenon I want to analyze. All of these admitted conditions, I think, do not preclude scientific integrity or accurateness, but ask for that. So uh, they do allow for different perspectives on an issue or even for the discovery of a yet unseen phenomenon. So, but what we are in here, of course, is, is the not at all easy challenge for phenomenology. And often if people come from outside, they often ask us, yeah, but isn't this just about your subjective experience and what you think about that? And isn't that just like super... Um, contingent and shouldn't we talk about concepts and, and so on and so forth. So, and I think that is why 
it is important to always stress that yes, it is about subjective experience because this is where the world and, and my axis and our access to it happens. But at the same time for phenomenology, it is extremely important that whatever theories, whatever claims will be developed out of these analyses, they will always have to prove their claims in intersubjective critique and uh, justification. So um, there always has to be an intersubjective accessibility um, of um, those claims I make about how experience is structured. And this is why in phenomenology, I think we often talk about types um, and also structures and conditions of experience and not about the different shades of red or blue we are all seeing because that, that might indeed be difficult to talk about, although we can also do that, but that's maybe not even that interesting. So this is a challenge for, for each and every one of us to sort of uh, get some types and structures out of experience that are also intersubjectively and politically also relevant. And that of course means that we can critically talk about that. Okay, but then just to give you an example, a more concrete example of what I've been talking now, I want to turn to the example of the phenomenon of law, where we can, I think, get an idea and I will just very, very shortly only go into that. But I think that we can get an idea of how many aspects uh, the phenomenon of law actually has. And this is a challenge not only for phenomenology, but of course for philosophy of law in general, and how the choice of phenomenon relates to the method taken. So let me just go through some um, uh, phenomenologists of law who've approached, who've taken different approaches to this um, legal phenomenon. First of all, there is, of course, uh, Adolf Reinach, uh, one could call him the founder of phenomenology of law. And he puts the social act of promising in the center um, of uh, the origin of the meaning of law, civil law, the, the contract in the end. And he inquires into this social act of promising with an eidetic and also correlational analysis because um, from this, as he claims, springs the meaning of what an, an appeal is, a right is. So investigating the essence of this promising act and its correlate, the appeal, this is what Paul Reinach approaches the phenomenon. The phenomenon for him is people socially interacting in a specific way. But then we also have uh, theorists that come from um, positive, uh, so positive legal theory. For example, there are two people, Schreier, who was a disciple of uh, Hans Kelsen, and Paul Amselek, a French uh, philosopher, who um, then take a phenomenological view um, at law as it is given, especially to uh, the legal theorist and therefore they look at correlated act types so I won't go more into that but just to 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 convey that there can be very different approaches it doesn't it can also be theoretical how do we it's more epistemological how do we recognize something as a law and cognize something as a law then there is Gerhard Husserl I don't know if you've heard about him before he's the son of Edmund Husserl who um, also um, studied law and did engage in, in phenomenology of law. And he locates the being of law, as he says, in its validity, 
and hence develops a transcendental theory of intersubjective recognition and validity constitution. And later on, when he becomes more um, Heideggerian, influenced by Heidegger and interested in, uh, in worldliness, um, he, uh, he takes a look at the experience and, uh, of law and its temporality, its worldliness, its givenness to judgment, judges and laymen and professional users. And he turns then to a more life-worldly and existential analysis. Then we have uh, Alfred Schutz, also a famous founder of uh, phenomenological sociology, who was influenced by the methods of Edmund Husserl, but also Hans Kelsen and Max Weber. And he, for example, sees legal theory, again, from a much more theoretical approach, namely as a science of normative ideal types. A law is sort of a type of action that asks me normatively to do it this or that way. And that are applied to the life world like abstract schemes. That's uh, sort of the way he sees uh, what law is, how law is happening. Um, then there is a French um, philosopher of law, Simone Royard-Fabre, who um, emphasizes the ambiguities of law. So she comes from a more Melopontian approach. Um, so she emphasizes the ambiguity of law as lived and even as an incorporated category of social life. So think of gender categories or racialized sort of uh, environments that sort of make you live in a way the, um, the, the legal structure of a society. Um, and then on the other hand, it's abstract uh, normative forms. And uh, she works, as I've mentioned, with Meliponti's approach, um, sort of with the motto of looking beyond just empiricists and only intellectualist uh, preconceptions of law, but on the ambiguities, how it is lived in between. Unfortunately, this work is only, has only appeared in French, um, but I think it's uh, quite an interesting uh, approach here. Um, then, of course, we have uh, more famous uh, phenomenologists like uh, Levinas, who um, is interested in the basis of uh, human rights, which he methodically traces in our responsibility to alterity. And then there is uh, Bernhard Waldenfels, German phenomenologist, who regards the phenomenon of order as crucial for law and who turns to a more structural analysis which shows that order essentially produces in and exclusions and thus the extraordinary as a sort of surplus to which the order then in, in turn responds and by which it is constantly irritated and changed. And Hans Lindahl, for example, has taken up uh, this approach in, uh, in a phenomenological book on law, on uh, global um, law even. So um, these are all, of course, only shorthand uh, descriptions now. But what I just hope to show very shortly is that there is definitely not one intellectual project called the phenomenology of law, but a plurality of approaches. And that this brings out different facets and forms of, a, of the phenomenon of law it would not make sense to just lump them together under one methodological orthodoxy. So I think we have a strength here and not a weakness. The phenomenon inquired correlates with the method as we can see and eventually shapes the respective concept of law. 
On the other hand, it is also uh, fair enough to sort of acquire a way of seeing through engaging in a certain approach, like, for example, Merleau-Ponty's approach or Heidegger's approach or whatever, and then um, sort of uh, through engaging with this exemplary, exemplary methodologic, met, methodological approach, this opens up perspectives on a different subject. So then, then you sort of go to it um, with this approach uh, of beyond empiricism and uh, intellectualism to the phenomenon of law and say, well, don't we have a, a similar problem here? And can't we look at that in this way? So um, I think that phenological inquiry, in fact, works both ways to get an inspiration from an approach, but always also to sort of, uh, then you have to deal with that phenomenon you're looking at. Our short look on the history of this pluralistic branch of phenomenology, phenomenology of law, um, gives a good example of how futile it would be to prescribe the one and only correct methodology. What we can nevertheless do is identify a sort of family resemblance, and that is that uh, phenomenological investigations are attentive to modes of givenness, and thus to experience, to subjectivity, to intersubjectivity, to appearance and world, and as I said before, meaning. Although these terms seem to indicate even a more substantial than only methodological orientation, their interconnectedness points to the essential but dynamic methodological framework of phenomenology. And this framework, as I said, is correlational, co-constitutional, and interrelational. And famously, this has been articulated also by Merleau-Ponty as this triangle between subjectivity, intersubjectivity, and world. These are just now, to start with, um, methodological orientation points rather than a strict manual. And they ask from the phenomenologist to be further developed as she continues her specific inquiry. Now, let's come to a second uh, basic question, much shorter, but this will keep, um, I, I will keep treating this question in uh, the rest of my talk. And that is, of course, um, um, an important question if dealing with uh, normative orders. And also a question that you hear a lot from, you know, people coming from outside from phenomenology asking, well, what is this now? Is it descriptive? Is it, is it normative? Um, what, what kind of uh, method is this? And how is this uh, reflected in, uh, in its methodology? Now, um, one important, so this is the, I think this is the important question um, that always uh, one is confronted with when dealing with normative disciplines is the method now descriptive or normative. Um, okay, can it be used to justify norms or is it just descriptive? And phenomenology indeed does not fit easily into this dichotomy. To be descriptive is of course a phenomenological ethos that aims to refrain, as I explained before, from deforming the phenomenon, the phenomenon methodologically, so not making something else out of it. Um, but that does not rule out normative inquiry at all. Um, to the contrary, or for example, if the description of a phenomenon, like, for example, the ethical encounter with another, or the social act of the promise, 
implies ethical or even something like proto-legal normativity, the phenomenologist will, of course, turn exactly to that. Um, Waldenfels, uh, therefore, quite helpfully, I think, described phenomenology itself as a responsive method. On the one hand, this means that it often uncovers a certain proto-normativity, so not yet fully justified norms, but um, in fact how the meaning of normativity comes about and emerges. Um, and that happens uh, within certain acts or practices. For example, and this is an example that Weidenfels gives, and it's in a very easy everyday example, you are asked by someone, what, what's the time? Uh, you ask the question by someone somewhere on the street, whatever. Um, so you are addressed and being addressed puts you in the position to respond. Um, you cannot choose. Even if you do not respond, this will be a response. So you are kind of put into a situation here that automatically creates something like a proto-normative framework, I would say. And we can regard this as a sort of implicit normativity that is revealed in the description of the phenomenon. So if you just state and say, you have asked me a question, full stop, as a description, then you're actually not really um, paying attention to that a question has been asked, but you make a question into a descriptive sentence. And this is not how phenomenolo phenomenological description works. So, um, it rather tries to uh, work out that um, being addressed uh, is something that puts me in a certain position where I cannot not respond. Yeah? So, um, and, and these uh, simple situations, exactly what many social acts are about, is that I realize it and it puts me in a relation with another, another human being. And um, of course, this is a bit more than a mere affordance like a doorknob, which I can um, open or not. Um, but of course, this is also, and this is a, another form of uh, normativity. And just let me shortly mention that I've developed that more in another paper. But what I try to do is to discern a little bit, not exhaustively, but these would be three important distinctions uh, between operative, imperative, and critical normativity in phenomenology. I talked about imperative already, the being addressed, um, that, that sort of uh, induces a second uh, person stance. And uh, the, the doorknob, <laughs> something like that, I would rather call an operative um, normativity. So, um, the, the our whole apparatus of uh, perception guided by habitualized experiences, horizons, etc., can be described as operating with an implicit, historically and culturally acquired normativity. And this is an implicit uh, normativity. To describe these workings, and this has been done a lot in the last years and has revealed, I think, very, very interesting uh, results, to describe these workings can be a powerful tool for critical and political inquiry by tracing the inscription, inscriptions of power into our very basic modes of bodily being and perceptions. For example, in racialized environments, the phenomenology of whiteness and uh, topics like that. Um, the, the third form of uh, critical normativity then would be an 
so how do experience and normativity interact here? Here we have an explicit a way, this would be also a sort of classical form, where the norm is not implicit, but it's an active application of norms to my experience and a constant re-examination of it. If you look at Husserl's work in ethics, um, this is precisely what is done here a lot. And what I would like to point uh, to here now is another form maybe that I would uh, um, um, label as a sort of subform of a critical um, normativity and this is something like metacritical because it refers to um, methodology and here I want to emphasize again the responsiveness of the phenomenological method itself as we can see in the development of phenomenology um, where sort of the reflection turns on the method itself. And this is what is meant by there is a constant adjustment of phenomenon and method. It is hence the method itself, which is questioned by the encounter with the phenomenon and which is called to answer by transforming its tools and becoming sensitive, for example, to issues of alterity. I think Levinas is the paradigm here for um, really being extremely attentive on a methodological level um, uh, in, in terms of how can we even start talking about something like alterity. Um, so, and thereby famously he transforms phenomenology into an ethics as first philosophy and turns around, for example, important notions such as intentionality into counter-intentionality and shifts the theoretical interrelatedness between subjectivity and subject subjectivity and world to an ethical structure of responsibility which intends it to disrupt itself um, and the structures of the other and the third. So this is just uh, one example where um, the relation between phenomenology and proto-normativity even reflects back on the methodological approach itself. So phenomenology here doesn't present itself as a neutral method, but lets itself be questioned and disturbed. The appeal to responsibility as well as Levinas calls this the cry for justice is now as it were, not a duty imposed on phenomenology from outside, but something that springs from the very description of the phenomenon itself. Hence the critical work that phenomenology can do concerning, for example, issues of equality and emancipation is not to take them as abstract normative concepts, but to demonstrate and analyze their basic meaning on an experiential and sometimes proto-normative level. Um, okay, so far um, these basic consideration. Now I move to my second part and look at some challenges, and it's also a prolongation of the thoughts that I've developed so far. Um, let me just make one thing clear in advance. Of course, there are a lot of methodological challenges for phenomenology in the domain of normative orders. And it, it, let me be clear that I do not think that phenomenology is a universal method to just explain everything. So um, some issues, for example, complex and abstract institutional systems, think of European law or globalized capitalism, 
uh, I think, better explained and grasped by other approaches. I believe that it is very important to reflect on what phenomenology can do and what it cannot do and also does not have to do. So having said that, I am convinced that in the current theoretical landscape, a methodically grounded and differentiated approach to the experiential dimension of normative orders is indeed urgently needed. Phenomenology has its strength here and could positively face the challenges other approaches and their difficulties have confronted us with. And so let me first turn to this question of um, constitution and what does this mean for the position of the subject, which is on the one hand subjected to the stru power structures and how can phenomenology um, deal with this question if it talks about subjective experience. So um, power and institutions uh, produce subject positions and possibilities of action, but they also manifest themselves in the lived experiences of these subjects. And eventually they can only be changed by them. The challenge of theory building at this point of intersection is to integrate these different insights also methodologically. For phenomenologists, this requires, I think, an extra methodological reflection since their core notions of experience and subjectivity have been criticized heavily in this context. And this is just a reminder, if we look back at the critiques of experience um, by Habermas or Foucault or uh, Luhmann, for example, um, they, these theories do not have too much in common, but in all of them, experience is only uh, ascribed a minor role and regarded um, with uh, suspicion. Foucault's argument, which regards experience as discursive effect, has been especially scrutinized by, by feminists like Judith Butler, Joan Scott, who endeavored to counter essentialist accounts or claims, claims as if like there, there was something untouched or untouchable beyond discourse. They wanted to attack that, which is very understandable, I think. Um, and uh, that's why I think these uh, criticisms were also important to be, to start being a bit hermeneutically suspicious of not like upfront talking about these are my experiences and not inquiring that how desires and experiences might be formed by power structures. Um, but I think that doesn't rule out a phenomenological account at all. And um, I mean, there have been these criticisms from the 70s to the 90s, but there has, of course, also been a, a, a big response to that with refined phenomenological theories of experience in the work of uh, Iris Marin Young or Dan Zahavi or Sarah Heinema or Tony Steinbock or Johanna Oxala, just to name a few here. And um, uh, although this is true that sort of um, there has been this response and we have the tools, I still think that um, in analysis of normative orders today, um, the, the, the field is still dominated by theories that tend to reduce experience to a discursive constellation. So I think there is still a lot of work uh, to do for us here. Uh, phenomenology could therefore make um, 
much needed contribution to these uh, debates by focusing on the experiential dimension in a way that incorporates and even deepens these insights. Let us again look at the example of law and as a bit of a continuation of the um, slide before. And uh, here, of course, we've had influential post-structuralist uh, critiques in the last decades, Menke, Butler, Agamben, and so on, that have helped us to understand how law produces subjectivities and expresses power formations. Yet, I think that a, that, that, that a positive articulation of what um, uh, Ari Hirvonen called that being through law, um, how, how that could be um, articulated existentially and phenomenologically, that this is still missing. So the importance for legal frameworks, for being a self, for being with others, and for being in a political community. A phenomenological thesis could be that law is not just an instrument or a tool by which we realize our intentions, but that it expresses and mediates our individuality in modern society where human actions are to a large extent realized through formalized legal categories. You just can't escape them. Such legally formalized actions are in no way existentially trivial. On the contrary, they are in many ways the kind of actions through which we come to express who we are or we don't come to express who we are. So furthermore, I think there is something, so there is something it is like to act within these structures, meaning that this yields specific experiences of ourselves, the world and others. And by paying heed now to the ontological and existential dimensions of law, we we learn or we come to recognize that a formal system of law also always expresses and mediates or fails to express and mediate our individuality in a common world. And um, I am aware that there is a, sort of the Hegelian tradition as well um, that um, is going through certain forms of experience to then reach the next level. It's like the phenomenology of spirit works and that this has been taken up in a, in a modernized um, reworked way by, by Honneth, for example, in his theory of recognition. But here I think that, you know, um, he often works with psychoanalysis, for example. And I think that phenomenology can contribute a lot also, not in, a, not in such a dialectical way, um, which I also don't always find most convincing, but um, also on a very basic level of articulating in which sense certain experiences have a normative impact and types of experiences have a normative impact on how we can see ourselves um, and others in the world. What studies of the last years um, have done uh, that one could, you know, call critical phenomenology, thinking of the work of Aitang and Doktu, Sarah Ahmed or Marike Born, uh, for example, looking rather at the side of loss, lack or disorientation of negative, privative experiences. And that is, of course, a lesson to be learned we can already find in uh, Hannah Arendt, who famously, famously states in her book on totalitarianism that um, refugees and stateless persons, um, that, that, that their um, deprivation uh, of rights manifests themselves, and I quote her here, first and above all, in the deprivation of a place in the world which makes opinions significant and actions effective. 
So the existential significance of realizing oneself through the medium of law is hence revealed most and most clearly in its absence. That is also an important thing, uh, I guess, to, uh, for phenomenological analysis. Concrete experiences of loss of rights are often expressed in existential terms, not just a loss to access, to, to access of basic necessities, but also as a loss of belonging, uh, which Arendt called worldlessness, for example. Um, I take Arendt as an example for a best practice model and provider of important concepts here. But one could also think of other phenomenological authors. What is crucial is that a phenomenological framework allows one to conceive the workings of structures, orders, procedures, as Scary has put that, a making and unmaking of world for the concerned subjects. To describe this process by drawing, on the one hand, on existing empirical documentation of the lived experience of the loss of rights, for example, and on the other hand, on this rich phenomenological framework I've tried to describe, is one important way, I think, of doing phenomenology in these uh, current debates. Another field of interest, and um, let me just mention that on the side, because I know that some people in Exeter are actually um, working on that, uh, would be digital life world. So online experiences and sociality, Lucy Osler is working on that. And there are also some uh, British uh, sociologists inspired by phenomenology. I'm not going through all these quotes because I'm running out of time, but who clearly say that um, a phenomenology of the digital world, talking about the experience, these experiences that um, form sort of uh, new spaces of meaning uh, where the world and others, and you know, we are experiencing right now, it's a different feeling of intersubjectivity and temporality and spatiality. And all of this, I think, uh, is a very um, um, interesting topic also for phenomenological investigations. Okay, then let me, um, let me uh, come to uh, a last uh, point here where I'm basically going to take a little bit of time to wrap the whole thing up in a proposal of how to approach all these phenomena. Um, so we've heard that the phenomenological uh, tradition has a lot of classical tools and resources, you know, about eidetic analysis, correlation analysis, constitution theory, but also more Heideggerian approach of hermeneutic uh, analysis of existence and being in the world, or of bodily being and intersubjectivity to um, shortly touch upon Malapunti. These are really the classic um, examples. Um, let me just um, try to, to say something about experience here, because this is also something one is very often asked how is experience actually understood in these phenomenological approaches so experience is of course here a rich and complex term as i've tried to argue the basic understanding is that experience is the medium which opens up a world to us in which we live on an everyday basis and develop understandings of ourselves of others and the world and 
Now, as far as this relation of experience and normativity, I've said I will come back to this, and here I am in this last part, as far as this um, relation is concerned, my proposal would be this, to say that, okay, how do we approach norms? Norms are embedded, they're not abstract for the phenomenologist, but they are embedded in contexts where they make sense, and by that I don't mean that they are all justified and make sense in that sort of way, but that they materialize itself as meaning in my life, as possibilities, as I can's and I cannot, um, I can make sense and things like that. So, and that this sense making and the contextualization, so actually the life of norms takes place at an experiential level where we are engaged in situations that matter to us in one way or the other. Hence, these experiences and practices are not merely ready-made for just any empirical registration with, all, with already established conceptual grids. That's why we are very often called to develop new um, uh, grids or forms in, in ways to describe experience. In fact, these experiences occur in spaces where the social, the political, the economic, the public and the private are blurred and overlap with each other. Here we can describe meaning and normativity as Meloponti would say, in statu nascendi, so as they are born, I think in English one could say in the making. Yeah? So while, while their sense is, is um, um, coming up, evolving in the very situation. Furthermore, experience of course do not simply occur in an isolated mind or a brain, but involve the body and intersubjective relations, and they thereby form a world which is to be described in its temporality, its spatiality, its affectivity, and its overall orientation. So my thesis is uh, very simply that structures are not abstract for the phenomenological inquiry and normative, normative structures especially, but are experienced as spaces of meaning. And um, this is, I just use this term to basically wrap everything up I've tried to say. And um, spaces of meaning can be something like politicized or racialized or economized spaces with their dif different conditioning aspects. And I would like to propose this as a sort of uh, methodological framework uh, with which we can aim at systematically expanding phenomenological analysis to the field of uh, the political and normative orders. And we've seen that already in works done. So what I'm trying to do here is just to sort of uh, put five bullet points together in the end to characterize what I mean by spaces of meaning. So um, a space of meaning is an oriented world with a certain temporality, spatiality, a certain form of intersubjectivity, a certain inner organization of sequence, rhythm, combination, and modality. Modality by this I mean that certain things are possible, doubtful, not necessary, necessary uh, within, appear as that within these spaces. Um, because spaces of meaning are oriented spaces, they possess, I would say, an inherent normativity in the sense that they allow for something to unfold, 
uh, in a better or worse or simply a different way, depending on how the activity fits into the particular context. Then another point is that, of course, we have to consider that we don't run around in natural spaces. So our spaces of meaning are always conditioned. They, they are historical, they are cultural, they are technologically conditioned more and more like this space right now. Um, and they're of course socioeconomically conditioned and that indirectly shapes our experiences. And I think that as phenomenologists, we um, must take that into account by also looking at these conditions and then looking at what kind of experiences they can allow for and what they might not be able to foster or allow for or what might be better through that. Um, but that is a very um, challenging work, of course. Then, um, but another important thing is to recognize as a phenomenologist that we always operate in spaces of meaning. There is no experience outside of such spaces. This amounts to the phenomenological insight that to be conscious or to be in the world is to find oneself always in the midst and medium of, of meaning rather than finding oneself as an element in a blind causal chain. And this also characterizes the rich notion of experience that is used in phenomenology, which is conceived as world opening. Um, and now, um, finally, what is also crucial about the emphasis on spaces is that through a certain structuring, a certain in-between is created like lines on a piece of paper shaping the arrangements of the black, blank spaces in between, or like pieces of furniture shaping a room. This requires, I think, further reflections on conditions of appearance and possible forms of intersubjectivity. And um, it is also clear, of course, that these forms of intersubjectivity and the social world play one of the most important roles in actualizing and maintaining such spaces of meaning. Now, um, in, in, in my work, and I won't talk about, about that um, uh, anymore, but uh, just to give you an idea where I see that happening a lot. I see that happening a lot in uh, Hannah Arendt's work when she addresses types of experiences like um, producing a work, laboring or acting together, analyzing their intersubjectivity, analyzing their temporality, their, 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 their political relevance, their spatiality, and sort of how in spaces of meaning, their meanings have also changed, and also taking into account how this appears to others. So the visibility and uh, private and public spaces of meaning. The only thing I want to point, here, uh, point to here is that Hannah Arendt says two important things quite in explicitly also, that uh, are important for phenomenologists. Um, she says, um, well, this is not about an internal state of mind or a mere behavior. Um, to the contrary, she explicitly um, criticizes that most of her contemporaries' approaches only look at, um, as she says, a possible change in the psychology of human beings their so-called behavior patterns and not a change of the world they move in. 
uh, unquote. For Arendt, it is, quote, this psychological interpretation of human existence as if experience were only something in my head and then if I take something, I, I might feel fine again with uh, the whole world as it is. Um, on which the social sciences are based. This is, of course, uh, quite a mean um, um, mm, reproach here. But our point is that this passes over the basic phenomenon of being in the world, the phenomenon of meaningful orientedness, orientedness in a structured space. And uh, so I think this is where our task lies in description and description of a normative relevance as phenomenologists. And um, yeah, let me come to my conclusion now. Um, as stated in the beginning, there is not one way of doing phenomenology. What I've tried to do is to point out some cornerstones, some tools and main guidelines, and finally a flexible framework that phenomenologists can use and modify as they go along. The phenomenological method today, I think, has all the resources and best practice models it needs to inspire investigations connected to order, experience, and critique, and also in that what we call engaged phenomenology here at this uh, conference. And um, in the current debates on political and legal issues, I see the main tasks of phenomenology in reclaiming experience as a world building and world opening function also in, in a normative sense and in demonstrating how structures and orders are lived why they condition and form spaces of meaning and the most important thing the sentence i'm going to end with i think is the following that if we want to understand criticize act or change something this subjective and intersubjective perspective will remain indispensable and now I thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>